Hey, everybody. I got some big news about the It's All Journalism podcast. If you've had a chance to go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, it has been updated. It looks prettier and it functions a bit better than a website that was originally built in 2012 and updated last in 2017. It took us a long time to get to this point, but I think this will serve our podcast well, and I hope you enjoy using it. Let us know what you think. And now enjoy our new episode. The Inquirer regularly receives requests from subjects of articles asking for stories to be removed or edited because they continue to cause them harm. So this policy was created to kind of address those requests in a consistent and equitable manner. Today, I talked to two people who developed a policy that makes unwanted stories disappear from online publications. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Evan Ben is the Senior Director of Special Projects and Communications at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Emily Babay is the coverage editor on the Inquirer's Now team. Evan and Emily are here to talk about the Inquirer's Up for Review policy, which the paper uses to re-examine stories that caused significant harm when they were first reported. Evan and Emily, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Okay, cool. And the reason I'm having you on is that even though you you are not, I guess, executing the policy, but you were actually involved in the creation of the policy. But before we go into that, let's learn a little bit about each of you. Evan, what got you interested in journalism and led to your current role at the Inquirer? Sure. Well, I got interested in journalism in middle school. I took a, a tour of the local newspaper, the York, Pennsylvania Dispatch and Sunday News as part of a, a field trip for my middle school newspaper staff. And I, I fell in love with the atmosphere of the newsroom and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So uh, I went on to journalism school and worked at the Miami Herald out of school as a general assignment reporter, moved into editing, spent some time at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And then um, my last job went back to Miami. My last job at the Miami Herald was editor-in-chief of their luxury lifestyle magazine called Indulge. And that kind of gave me for the first time a sense into the business side of publishing. I really relished that. So when we moved to Philadelphia and I found this job at the Inquirer, I kind of wanted to continue that, that position of being in the newsroom, but kind of working with other departments to help us find our, our goals. So that's what I do here. I'm in our newsroom and I report to our editor, Gabe Escobar, but I also work closely with other departments to help us push things forward. Is your role something, I guess, a lot of papers used to have, which was an ombudsman? Are you sort of between the readers and the, the editors, or is it more you're sort of focused on policy within the newsroom? I wouldn't say ombudsman, but I, I do communicate, you know, both internally and, and externally with, with readers. So that's a role I appreciate very much. Okay. Emily, it's your turn. What got you interested in journalism, and how did you end up as a member of the Inquirer's Now team? And you're going to have to explain what now, the Now team is. Like Evan, I also got started pretty early in high school. I wrote for my local newspaper's team page and progressed from there. I fell in love with Philadelphia when I moved here for college and then had a brief interlude afterwards working in D.C. But I've been back here in Philly and at the Inquirer for a little more than a decade now. And as you mentioned, I'm an editor on our Now desk which is a team of general assignment reporters. We say that we're loosely focused on breaking news. Basically, our goal is to cover whatever Philadelphians are talking about on 
any given day. And some days that's kind of the big, terrible tragedies. Other days it's dumb debates on the internet and we do everything in between. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I would imagine it's something, as you said, that's really fun. As a starting point, tell me a little bit, whoever wants to jump in, is, you know, what is the up, up review policy? What is it you're trying to accomplish with that? Or the inquiry is trying to accomplish with that? Yeah, so, I mean, broadly speaking, the up for review policy is is meant to offer a fresh look at stories that may have caused unintended and, and lasting harm. As we know, stories can live forever on the internet and some can really affect people's ability to get jobs or housing and, and more. So the Inquirer regularly receives requests from subjects of articles asking for stories to be removed or edited because they continue to cause them harm. So this policy was created to kind of address those requests in a consistent and equitable manner. You know, when was this sort of policy developed? Who was involved and how long did the process take? So largely speaking, the, the policy was born out of work that we call Inquirer for All, which started in 2020 after the George Floyd murder and the aftermath of that. There was a, a racist headline that, that the Inquirer printed, and it really prompted us to relook what we were doing. And, you know, we decided to really undertake to become an anti-racist news organization. And so part of Inquirer for All, almost 100 journalists and others at the Inquirer through working groups, got together and, and looked for initiatives that could, you know, help us reach that goal of being an, an anti-racist news organization, one of them being the Up for Review policy. So Emily and myself, we led the policy and process committee as part of the Up Inquirer for All work, and Up for Review was one of the things that came out of that working group. So Emily, tell me about your role in, in the working group. What was it when you got involved that you wanted to sort of contribute, and what did you sort of learn during the process? Yeah, so our group was focused on looking at the inquirer's policies and processes and kind of identifying places where we could change or add to those to make how our newsroom operates a more anti-racist place. Um, and that kind of encompassed both sort of internal, like how we work policies and processes, such as like developing a process for getting sensitivity reads on stories before they're published in an effort to prevent offensive things actually getting out into publication. And then others are were more kind of public facing them and up for review was one of those, um, which kind of changes both our internal systems of how we address these requests regarding older stories, but also it is public facing and readers can now have a centralized way to apply to ask us to look at these what types of stories are, are readers asking for for you to review and maybe take down? There's really quite a variety. The policy in large part was developed with sort of low-level criminal cases as envisioned as a kind of what would encompass a large majority of these requests, particularly for cases where charges were ultimately downgraded or dropped entirely and we had never written a follow-up story but there's also just kind of been some kind of embarrassing type stories or things like old dating columns um, where the person ultimately did not end up with the person they were profiled with when we wrote about them and things like that. The um, low-hanging fruit, the, you know, unprosecuted criminal cases that, 
you know, I think that's pretty familiar with a lot of news organizations who've adopted policies like this. Are there people that this policy sort of excludes from, you know, this story is detrimental to me? Is it, you know, people in the in the community that they're going to have to have a harder sell to have a story taken down or corrected? Yeah, so kind of there's a few specific cases that were outright not considering cases regarding elected officials or a former public official about their time in office. And then the other kind of broad category that we won't consider right now is for current news stories. Um, If it's an ongoing situation or ongoing criminal proceedings, if sort of a reasonable person might want to type the news event or person's name into Google and be expecting to find inquirer content about that, that's not a story that we're going to de-index if there it's kind of a recent active ongoing situation. The policy is really meant to look at stories from years, sometimes many years ago, that are still causing harm that we did not intend and take steps to address those, not to address kind of current news stories that a subject simply doesn't like. Evan, when when did this um, this sort of policy go into effect? I know that you talked about in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's murder. When was this policy developed and when you start implementing it or the paper start implementing it? Yeah, so we developed it over, you know, 2021, 2022, and then we announced it formally on February 1st of this year. So it's been in effect for a little more than a month. And so far, the feedback has been really great internally from folks in the journalism industry like you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And, you know, we're trying to do more to get the word out in the community because the whole point of us doing this was to really let the public know for the first time that this avenue was available for them. So we've been working with our new communities and engagement desk, which was also an output of the Inquirer for All Work. And one of their suggestions was to make um, translations of the form, the submission form available in other languages. So in about a month, we're going to roll out Spanish and Mandarin translations of that form. One of the things you said that pushed this policy forward was the the paper sort of looking internally following a racist headline. Do you see that this is sort of set up as a way for the public to directly request, or is there a mechanism in place for the inquirer to sort of look at things from within? I guess what I'm really trying to determine is, is the instigating source, whether it's internal or whether it's external. Do you use this process to address issues with headlines and stories and things ahead of time before publication? Yeah, kind of an internal review is what helped lead to this external policy. That said, it also helped lead to some different internal policies as well. So in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder and that headline in 2020, the Inquirer and our nonprofit owner, the Lenfest Institute, we worked with researchers from Temple University on a comprehensive audit of our content, and they looked at more than 3,000 recent stories and delivered a set of recommendations to us as to how we could improve our journalism, our newsroom culture, and also our community engagement of you know, Philadelphia's diverse communities. So while that process, we didn't touch any, any old stories, it did lead to other positive changes that we've implemented as part of that work. And that includes the upper review policy, of course, as well as an anti-racist workflow guide that our journalists can use in their reporting. And, you know, Emily mentioned what we call the content consult Slack channel. So that's a place where we can collectively 
offer guidance on sensitive stories before they're published. And then we also talked about the communities and engagement desk in our newsroom that reports on underserved communities. And that's that was also an output of that inquirer for all work and, and the temple audit. So was there a general sense of among staff members that this was something that I guess that there was buy-in, that they understood that this is something that paper needed to do and that people had to sort of look at their own processes and and how they report and how they write? Yeah, I would say our, our newsroom definitely embraced the work writ large and specifically as it pertains to the up for review policy. I think, you know, all journalists are hesitant to change our work or to erase history. So well, we made it really clear that that's not the remedy that up for review is, is taking. We're not unpublishing stories. We're not significantly editing them. You know, the main recourse is to do what's called de-indexing. And when you de-index a story, it just makes it invisible for search engines like Google to find on our website. So it makes it much harder for someone's name to pop up on a Google search to see the story on inquire.com, even though it, it still lives there. So tell me about, I'm a reader. You know, I was involved in a DWI five years ago. I'm, I'm trying to get a job. And every time you Google my name, this thing comes up, the case was dismissed or, you know, I paid a fine and my life has been great since then. What's the process for me to communicate with the inquirer and sort of get some action done on this? Sure. So there's a form on our website that you or the reader can fill out that kind of let you explain sort of the basic situation of what the story is, how we can get back in touch with you, what kind of we should know to start looking into this request. And so that's kind of a central form that aims to kind of get a little bit more information up front than what someone might include in just an initial email. And so that can hopefully kind of speed up the process by eliminating a lot of back and forth Although we will still, when necessary, kind of reach back out to the person to request any additional documentation or any other information. If someone, say, mentions that we wrote four stories about them, but only includes a link to one, we might reach back out just so we know specifically what they're talking about. And then we have a committee of about eight newsroom staffers who kind of does the intake on these requests and each is kind of assigned to a specific person who will look into the situation and kind of gather all of the facts about what happened and our reporting on it. And that committee meets regularly to go over the requests that they've received. And they have kind of a set of criteria that they sort of go through when talking about cases and whether to de-index them, looking at sort of who benefits and who is harmed by the continued visibility of a story and kind of looking at things like how long it's been since the story was published, whether the person was a public official or in some other public trust position, if they were a minor at the time, if they explicitly agreed to be in the story or just kind of were mentioned by happenstance and sort of confirming whether the new situation is ongoing or not. And so they'll kind of look at sort of how those factors are trending and make a decision from there. Is this separate from the paper's correction policy? Do people reach out a different way to get a, a correction? It is separate. It's kind of corrections ideally are for recent stories. We want to, if we've made an error, we want to correct that as quickly as possible. 
this is more for stories that were accurate at the time that they were written. They are still accurate, but they're still causing harm. And looking at, in those cases, de-indexing often a good option to reduce that harm while preserving our factual record. Okay. So for stories that have errors in them, you know, from five years ago, if I contact the paper, it would pretty much be the same policy that they would employ for corrections of a, of a story that's happened this week. Right. Okay. Because you want to, you want to be transparent. You want to show that you don't want to just get rid of it because that really doesn't solve the problem because it's a, um, you know, the story may very well be factual once it's corrected and you want to preserve the history of whatever the inquirer has written. I know this has only been a month, but have you gotten a sense of any feedback on stories? Have there been a lot of the indexing is going on or is it just sort of, you know, trickling in, I guess? We have gotten a good regular amount of requests. I'd say maybe a couple a week. And I think the requesters have been satisfied with, you know, the results. We try to communicate to them clearly and right away what our decisions are. You know, Emily kind of walked you through the process. It's an eight-person committee, and they meet regularly. And when a submission comes in, those eight folks are really from all over the newsroom, opinion, features, news, health. So they try to kind of funnel it to one person in particular with expertise in that realm. And that person will kind of take the lead on on doing the research and, and then reporting back to the rest of the group with their recommendations. And then they'll vote and make a decision. We've had a, a steady stream since the up for review policy was announced in February. And, you know, we just really hope to keep communicating it so people know this is available to them. Emily, do you see that this policy could be a way for the newsroom to sort of learn, you know, if somebody, for example, says, why did you put my mugshot up? It's not germane to the story. Could you please take it down? I mean, is it a way to inform other policies at the paper? Absolutely. And I think it kind of goes both ways in that up for review was actually developed as a like recognition that our policies have changed and that, for example, now we don't use mugshots with hardly any crime stories. Our standards for what we write crime briefs on have changed. And so this is a way up for review is a way to address stories that were written in a different era with different policies on what we deemed newsworthy. And so up for review is an acknowledgement of those changing policies. And like you just said, I think it does also go the other way in that we are looking at sort of what we're getting requests about, and that can also influence our reporting. There's not a new formal policy on this, but I know many of us are kind of considering when we name a minor in a story, just because so many requests up for review have been regarding people who were named in a story as a kid that like they didn't give their consent to have their name included. It was a parent or another relative and they no longer want that story out there. And so now we're looking at like whether it's truly necessary to include the kid's name in certain cases or there are other situations where I recently edited a story about an offensive vandalism incident. And we like deliberately decided to write about the incident, but not name the suspect out of thinking that if this person in five years writes to us under the up for review policy, it feels like a request we'd be likely to grant. And so we can write about the incident without 
involving the person's name now. I think like it's prompted a lot more consideration and discussion about coverage, but I don't know that we're at the point yet where we've instituted new policies based on it. Yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your feelings about participating in this process of sort of rethinking the way that the Inquirer covers the news in setting up a policy like this. Evan, you got a, a thought on that? Well, I mean, it was definitely a point of pride personally. I mean, I, I was really honored to be part of the work and to kind of take a, a leadership position within it. It's ongoing. And I think it was eye-opening to me as, as a white man. I think there was a lot of listening to be done and a lot of learning. And, you know, I think that's a lot of how we approach our work as journalists is to talk to people who know more about these things than we do and and to listen and to tell their stories. And I think kind of by approaching the work that way, we we were able to accomplish a lot of, of meaningful things that, you know, hopefully will be in place for a while. And these policies are, are not meant to be ironclad. You know, in fact, a lot of them are guidelines and guidance. And, you know, it's just, it's all in the effort of trying to get better together. Like you said, to have fewer mistakes, to do more things right. It's been a wonderful experience for me and, and I'm really honored to keep working on it. How about you, Emily? Yeah, I would agree with that. It's been very satisfying, particularly with up for reviews specifically. And I've certainly gained a lot by just through the Inquirer for All work. It's forced me to pay a lot more attention to what other newsrooms are doing in this area and look for ideas that we can bring to the Inquirer as part of our research for this policy. We did pretty extensive research on what other newsrooms, the handful of others that have publicized these efforts are doing, talking to colleagues there, talking to researchers who look into best practices on this type of work, and also talking with folks in our community who work with people who would be highly likely to benefit from such a policy. So the entire process has been both very rewarding and very educational. It's great that you get an opportunity to participate in the process to set up these types of policies, but then also get to see them implemented and sort of become part of your workflow as well as, as the rest of the office. I think, and this is an important consideration in journalism. I remember, you know, having come from a print background, I know that, you know, if somebody called up and said, you know, I was involved in a fender bender and, you know, I had to go to court, but the case was dismissed and you're like, well, it's just a you know, newspaper article. If we write something new, it's just going to draw attention to it. So, but now that we have everything that's going to be staying forever, we really have to sort of make these nuanced decisions. And it's four different answers depending yeah. on who talks to in the, in the newsroom, right? So this kind of codifies what, what we want to work toward. There's so many questions, so many nuances to it. It's important to look at that. And so it's admirable that you know, the Inquirer saw that this was a, a thing that it needed to do and that you you went ahead and did it. Evan, Emily, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been really informative and hopefully other newsrooms, uh, other journalists out there who may listen to this may think about, you know, how they could implement something like this at their uh, office. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Michael. Thank you so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. 
If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.